Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for Easter morning. We thank you for the promise and the hope of your resurrection. We pray that that would uh, settle deep in our hearts, that you'd encourage us, Lord, with the life and the truth of who we are in you and the future we have in you. We ask this in your name. Amen. I was looking at uh, Easter quotes. Uh, someone emailed me a bunch of Easter quotes. I was reading through them and then peppered them through my sermon, even though they don't fit very well in my sermon. But they were really good quotes. So I want to read this quote. This is a Eugene Peterson one. And it says this. This is more about the Bible than anything. But it's, uh, it's really fitting. He says, The Bible is not a script for a funeral service, but it is the record of God always bringing life where we expected to find death. Everywhere, it is a story of resurrection. I think that's very fitting. Because I think for Easter morning, I wonder if a lot of us have maybe lost the sense of wonder of what it means. And it's hard to recapture wonder, especially if you know the story really, really well. But I think if we, if we sit with this text this morning, just for a few moments, I wonder if we can recapture some of that sense of wonder. Not because we are just looking for some kind of emotional experience or spiritual experience but because the resurrection of Jesus really is the most wondrous thing that has happened in human history and moreover it has profound implications for you and for me right now today in our relationship with God and so it's worth spending time with and worth remembering what it means that Jesus is alive Luke's gospel uh, starts the way just about all the other gospel accounts do when it comes to the resurrection by indicating the day of the week and what's going on. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 24, on the first day of the week at early dawn, just as the sun is coming up, Sabbath has just passed, and the women are going with their spices and ointments, uh, still in their grief, going to the tomb. Uh, they've had to wait because of Passover to go and do the spices and the ointments bit. And so now that's done, they show up at the tomb. And it's worth remembering also, no one of Jesus' followers is expecting him to be resurrected. It's just not on their radar at all. It's not as though they thought, oh, it's too bad they got him, uh, but it's going to be okay because in three days he'll come back and we're just going to carry on, right? No, no, they killed him. He's dead. No one's expecting him to just come back. And so the women enter into this story in their own grief, in their own sense of despondency, in their own sense of hopelessness, and they're coming. You can imagine early morning with their little boxes of ointments and perfumes to try and make sense of what has just happened to their friend and to a mentor and to someone that they were beginning to believe was more than that, that indeed was perhaps the Messiah. Uh, and, and all that that meant in terms of Israel's hopes and, and prophetic promises and all the rest. And here they're coming uh, to, to really uh, salute and say goodbye to this person. And with them are bringing their grief and their sorrow. And I think this image of the women coming to the tomb can capture for us how so many feel as they are going about life without Jesus. This sense of going through life as best as we can with little boxes of ointments, little perfumes to try and soothe our hurts and to try and deal with our own brokenness and to try to make sense 
of the world around us, to try and do something against the unfathomable forces that seem to be against us. And here we go running around with our ointments. And I think indeed in this past year, we can, we can really feel that sense that our meager attempts to do something don't seem to matter a whole lot. What can we do against tyrannical governments, right? What can we do against uh, pandemics and viruses? What can we do against the brokenness in our own home and in our workplaces? What can we do in the brokenness and the strife in marriages and in families? What can we do against the substance abuse or the suicidal ideation that we hear about around us and indeed may struggle with ourselves? And against all those past wrongs and hurts that we still suffer with, both in our own lives and in society at large. It doesn't take long, even though we may feel that we're very progressive and very advanced and all that sort of thing, to realize there's real brokenness and real hurt and evil in the world. And for many people, this is life, going in the dark with our meager attempts, our little boxes of ointments, trying to do what we can against certain death and trying to make sense of it all. Going to tombs with spices is where many of us have been, and indeed some of us may be this morning, that we're still going to tombs with spices, thinking that hope is dead. And at that very moment, the story takes an unexpected turn. The stone is indeed rolled away. And we know from the archaeological evidence, often the tomb would be uh, kind of carved out of the stone and there'd be you know, alcoves and benches and niches kind of within the tomb to sort of lay bodies in. And then you'd seal that up, of course, against animals and grave robbers and whatnot to seal the door up. And if you're poor, usually you just have sort of a stone that kind of fits into the hole, so to speak, kind of like a cork, just kind of right in there. And if you're wealthy, like Joseph of Arimathea was, you get a rolling stone, which is really fancy. And uh, Jesus was laid in Joseph of Arimathea's uh, newly uh, etched out tomb. And so he's got the rolling stone going. And they show up only to find that the tomb is empty and the body's gone. And verse 4, they're perplexed. The response is not, oh, he's alive. The response is, what happened? Who moved the stone? Who took the body? What's going on? Jesus' life and God's plan interrupts their feeble attempts to use their ointments to solve the problem of death in the world. And I want you to hear that this morning, that as, as much as we may go about trying to solve the brokenness in our own hearts and to try to deal with the issues in society and what's in our hands seems so feeble, God interrupts that process with his own life and his transforming presence today. And he breaks into the midst of our own grief and our own challenges and our own weakness and announces that he is indeed alive. And often what we go expecting and thinking we are called to do, God indeed has already shown up and done something that is unexpected and then invites us into his life. And so the body's gone and the two angels are there to help them understand what's happened. Uh, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And remember, he actually told you about this, they say. Right? Remember, he said he'd be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise again. And no one really seemed to get that. No one expected that that was actually going to play out. And so when the women hear this and realize, oh my goodness, it's actually happened, 
based on the evidence of Jesus' own words and then the eyewitness evidence of the empty tomb itself, they enter into a new understanding of what God is doing in the world. Indeed, against the brokenness and sin and death, it is not a matter of us bringing spices, trying to atone for ourselves. Rather, God himself has broken in and done the atoning work for us. And now salvation is available, not because we earned it by our little boxes of spices and our feeble attempts to live a good life. No, indeed, Jesus has won the victory. And now we who join in with him and make our allegiance to him are indeed also filled with his risen life and can have hope for the future. And so they go back to tell the apostles, and I say it every Easter how cool it is that the women are the first apostles to the apostles, and off they go, and they tell the apostles themselves what's happened. And Peter runs up and takes a look and then goes home marveling. And then the scene ends, the scene shifts, and we go to the road to Emmaus. It's not yet the conclusion of Luke's gospel, and Luke brings us to a very specific scene to help us understand what's going on. And on the road to Emmaus, we find, once again, they're not carrying boxes of ointments, but we have two disciples trying to make sense of what has just happened and to come to grips with the, uh, the sudden and bitter end to what they thought was a hope-filled story. And they're leaving Jerusalem, the place of their grief and their sorrow. They're on their way to Emmaus. And as they're talking, suddenly Jesus himself draws near, even though they don't recognize him. And they start to talk about what's happened And this stranger starts to reveal from Scripture all that was prophesied about Jesus the Messiah, that God was going to come and set things right, and that the suffering servant from Isaiah was going to die and indeed rise again and therefore deal with sin and death, that this was all part of God's redemptive plan from the get-go. This is what it's been about, God giving his life for the life of the world, and that he's alive. And they don't know what that means. That's not part of the game plan, so to speak. In fact, they say, well, the women told us about seeing something, but we're not quite sure what to believe about it, right? And we've had enough and we're going home. And so off we go. They're completely confounded by the empty tomb. And then they're meeting with Jesus himself. What are the implications of that for us? Well, first, it's worth remembering that Israel had a hope for a resurrection of the dead at some point. They did believe that God was going to show up and raise people back to life and God was going to reign in Jerusalem and set things right and creation would be restored and, of course, they'd be out from under Rome and all would be dealt with and, uh, you know, things would be good. But now, if Jesus is truly alive, that means that future hope of new creation has suddenly come rushing in from the future into the present And what we hoped was going to come at the end has suddenly started here in the middle, that there's indeed a new creation, and it's being fulfilled in a really unexpected way. And so as they started to meditate on this and think about what it meant that God's new creation was starting now, they realize they have a new way of reading Scripture, of realizing Jesus was fulfilling all of Israel's ancient hopes. And indeed, that's what Jesus himself is doing with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, telling them how everything is pointing to him and to the cross and then to the empty tomb. And so they have a new creation happening. A new creation's coming and has already begun in him. And now they have a new way of thinking about scripture. 
And they also have the promise that they hoped for a new dwelling of God among his people. This was also part of what they hoped for, a new temple of sorts, a new way of God being with them. And now here's the risen Christ coming alongside them in their brokenness and in their grief. And just as the empty tomb interrupts the women's feeble attempts to deal with the brokenness of life as they come with their little boxes of ointments, so now the stranger on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself, interrupts the grief of the disciples. And you know, God is still in this work of interrupting us when all seems lost. That God still shows up on the road to Emmaus in our own lives when we feel lost and broken and in grief. Indeed, Jesus is there alongside of us if we have eyes to see him. And he has things to tell us and will reveal himself to us. But there was a great hope that God would make his dwelling with Israel again. And so how is that played out if Jesus is alive? Well, we get a good sense of it, actually, in John's gospel, in John 20. Same thing, resurrection morning. It's a new day. It's the first day of the week. It's the eighth day, you could say. And in verse 11 of John's gospel, in in chapter 20, Mary is weeping outside the tomb. And she stoops in, the same moment she's stooping in to look, and she sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. And I love to tell this story because it's so great for us to hear each Easter. But we might ask, where have we heard this before or seen this before, where you have a slab of something hard of stone with angels on either side? And any Israelite person would tell you, it looks like the Ark of the Covenant. It looks like we're stooping in to the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is sort of, that's sort of the hot spot where Yahweh dwells among his people there at the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant between the two angels. But now where's the presence of God? It's no longer there because the body's left the room. And as Mary stoops in to look into what John is pointing out to be like the Holy of Holies, we realize you don't need to go to the temple to find God anymore. That veil's been torn. We don't go to the empty tomb to find the presence of God in Jesus. He's alive and risen. And what does that mean? It means that the presence of God is now bursting out upon the whole world. It's no longer found in the temple. It's no longer found in the tomb. But Jesus is alive and coming alongside of you and me in the midst of all of our brokenness. And the Holy of Holies has indeed flooded the whole world. Which points back, of course, to Habakkuk and some of those great promises of the presence of God filling the world as water covers the sea. And so Mary looks in to see a sort of Holy of Holies with a sort of Ark of the Covenant, and yet Jesus is not there. The presence of God is not there. Where is Jesus? He's in the garden now calling her name, calling her to himself. He hasn't stayed dead. The perfect sacrificial lamb, the blood that would be poured on that mercy seat, is now back to life, the risen lamb, and his, his, his blood is washed away all of our sins forever permanently removed our transgressions as we come to him and ask for forgiveness and join in with him that life-giving presence of god has broken out across the world in healing grace the veil's been torn and the empty tomb is empty and so we have a new creation and we have a new understanding of scripture and a new revelation of god's presence no longer in the temple but covering the whole world. 
And now we also see a fulfillment of the promise of the Exodus, that what God had done for Israel in leading them out of Egypt, God promised he was going to do again in a new sort of way by rescuing people out of slavery and out of sin. And now, through Jesus, we can indeed experience a new exodus, a new life out of the bondage of sin and death and into new life. And so as Jesus is pointing to scriptures on the road to Emmaus and teaching the disciples, uh, the disciples decide to ask him over for dinner. Why don't you come with us? And something amazing happens in that moment. Jesus should be the guest receiving the food. And yet what happens? We turn around and suddenly Jesus is the host at the table. And he's the one taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it and giving it to the disciples. And it's meant to spark our imaginations. This sounds like the feeding of the 5,000, doesn't it? This also sounds like the Last Supper, doesn't it? That moment where Jesus revealed the character of God in serving others. And as Jesus does that, it says in verse 31, this amazing line, their eyes are opened and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And then he disappears from their sight and they're left wondering what just happened. And in verse 32, we get another awesome line that says, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. And so now having encountered the risen Jesus, what do they do? Well, they get up and they go back to Jerusalem. Instead of leaving the place of their brokenness and their grief, they've been changed by the risen Lord and are now ready to go back to the place where people are still in grief and still in brokenness to tell them the good news of what has happened. And that's why we must always remember as a church that the table that we come to to eat with Jesus is the launch pad of Christian mission. We come and experience God, and then we are sent out to invite others to come to the feast, to go as beggars, pointing other beggars to bread, as Martin Luther used to say it. And so as we encounter Jesus in our worship on a Sunday and in our lives, we are then, uh, it's meant to spark something within us to go and meet with those who don't yet know and call them into relationship with God, inviting others to the table. And so they go back to Jerusalem with the message that we too have seen Jesus. He is alive. And in the same way God takes us, our griefs and our sins, our little boxes of ointments, and as we come to him in faith and receive his life and forgiveness, we are sent back as disciples as well back to Jerusalem, back to the place where people don't yet know, where there is still hurt and grief and sorrow, and to point them to the one who reveals himself in his word and reveals himself in the breaking of the bread, arisen and alive, Jesus Christ. And so the resurrection deeply matters for us today. It's it's the, the promise of new creation, that it's begun and that it will come. It, it's the, the, the promise that Scripture holds together and points to Jesus, that he is fulfilling all of Israel's ancient hopes and prophecies are, are bound up in him. And God has said, yes, it's true. And here is the proof of that. There's a transformed way of reading Israel's story. It marks a new way of encountering the presence of God, that he's no longer in a temple, that he's not at the Ark of the Covenant, 
But and, and not only that, he's not in the physical body of Jesus, so to speak, laying in a tomb, but that his presence fills the world through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we haven't gotten to that, but will ascend and now sits at the right hand of the Father, his work done and accomplished. And finally, it's a new exodus. God, through the risen Jesus, has provided a way out of our slavery to sin and death. Which is why Paul can say, if Jesus hasn't been raised, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. If there's no resurrection, our sin has not yet been fully dealt with. But Paul goes on to say, Jesus has been raised and he is now the Lord of all. And because of that, the fear of death and the violence of death no longer has any power because the grave has been beaten. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, if man had his way, the plan of redemption would be an endless and bloody conflict. In reality, salvation was brought not by Jesus' fist, but by his nail-pierced hands. Not by muscle, but by love. Not by vengeance, but by forgiveness. Not by force, but by sacrifice. Jesus Christ, our Lord, surrendered in order that he might win. He destroyed his enemies by dying for them and conquered death by allowing death to conquer him. And so the living God has a weapon which goes beyond death, resurrection itself. And Jesus' resurrection means that through what God has done, through his death and resurrection, a new world has begun. And Jesus' people, all those who belong to him and share in his risen life by the power of the Spirit, are called to bear witness by what we do and what we say and how we act to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is risen Lord and indeed the King of the world. The question for any of us this morning is to ask, am I running around my life with a box of little ointments? trying the best I can to make sense of things, or will I lay that box down? Will I stop trying by the best of my own efforts to save myself? Or will I come and look at the empty tomb and realize it's only by the cross, it's only by Jesus' blood that I can be set free. It's only by receiving him as my Lord and Savior that I can come out of the cycle of trying to earn my own way into whatever I think life is meant to be about? Am I still running around with my attention wrapped up on what's dead instead of the one who's alive? Have I encountered the risen Jesus on the road of my own life? In my own questions, in my own seeking, do I realize he's come up beside me and has the answers I've been looking for? And will I turn to him today? In a sense, we must ask, am I still in Good Friday? Or am I in Resurrection Sunday? Am I still wandering the road to Emmaus? Or have I heard the invitation to come to the table and to eat? And if you have stuff in your life today that needs to get dealt with, you maybe have sin going on in your life that you know you need to confess, or maybe there's brokenness in a relationship that you've been trying to work out, or there's unresolved issues of some kind, or maybe there's past hurts that you're dealing with, or their sorrows that you've been holding on to, I want to invite you today to come and lay those things 
at the empty tomb. Lay down the boxes of little ointments and receive the balm of the Savior who can mend our broken hearts and bring life where there's death. And to ask him to forgive our sins and to bring hope and grace for reconciling our relationships, healing the wounds of the past, bringing joy for the sorrows of today. And maybe today you are hungry for a change. Maybe you've walked with Jesus a long time. The disciples on the road to Emmaus were indeed disciples. They had walked with Jesus, and yet they were encountering a season of grief, not knowing what was happening in their lives. Perhaps today you need to come and realize Jesus is still right there beside you. And so my prayer today is, as you would come to the table and as we celebrate uh, what Jesus has done for us, giving his life unto death and, and raising again to new life, if you are needing prayer this morning, I want to invite you to come and to receive prayer as you're coming to the table. And I know there's those who are here who would love to pray with you. And so if you, as you're coming up and, and you feel you need prayer on the way, on the road to the table, as if this is Emmaus between that bench and here, if you're feeling you need prayer along the way, indicate that. There'll be those who would love to come alongside and pray with you or come along the side and come find me and I'll be off over here and, and I would love to pray with you. If you're finding, I need to encounter and remember the risen Jesus in this area of my life before I come to that table, uh, we'd love to pray with you and receive ministry today uh, from Jesus who's alive. So let's pray and uh, we'll uh, prepare our hearts for the table. And if you need prayer this morning, if there's something going on in your life, you feel you've been carrying boxes of ointments, uh, let's lay that down today and let him come and bring his healing life as only Jesus can. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. And we thank you for the life and the hope that we have in you. Lord, we thank you that uh, the empty tomb is not something we bring about by our own efforts, that we can't save ourselves. Lord, that you've done the work of rescuing us. Lord, that you've taken our sin upon yourself, and at the cross you paid the price for it so we could be set free, forgiven and alive, filled with hope for the new creation that's to come and that's already started in you, Jesus. Lord, today I pray for your people who are gathered here and those who maybe are visiting or seeking or, and, and those who maybe have walked with you a long time but are in a difficult place this morning and need uh, a fresh encounter with you. We pray, Lord, that you would come and minister to our hearts today. Lord, if there are areas in our lives that we need to give over to you, I pray that you would uh, give us the courage to come forward and do that this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, if there are those who are seeking you and don't know if you're real and are wondering if it's all true, that you would come alongside them and by the power of your spirit, uh, show them, Lord, the way in which they are to go. Lord, we pray for those around us who don't know you and the, the, the various areas of our world and our lives that are really broken. And we pray this morning that you would come with your grace and your healing and your life. We think of situations in Dryden and situations in Canada and things around the world, Lord, where we're reminded 
of Good Friday, the grief and the sorrow of life. Lord, we pray that today on this Easter Sunday, that your healing love, your forgiveness, your grace would be poured out upon your world. Lord, that you would remind us afresh that you love us, that you come alongside us, and we pray for your peace and your righteousness to reign. Lord, as we come to this table, as we come to the feast, as we celebrate with you what you've done, that you invite us into relationship with you, may we come with open hearts today. Would you minister to us on the short sort of Emmaus road as we come forward to receive today? And may you be blessed, we ask in your name. Amen.